0: brethren, the Bible is filled with symbols. And God uses this method, using symbols and this sort of thing, to teach us lessons that we probably couldn't learn or learn as well any other way. For example, a mountain in Scripture often pictures a nation. Turn back to Isaiah chapter 2. Isaiah chapter 2. Isaiah chapter 2, very familiar scripture to you. Isaiah chapter 2, verse 2, it said, Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of of the Lord's house, talking about God's government, His kingdom, the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains, in other words, above all the other nations and governments, and shall be exalted above the hills, and all nations shall flow to it. So here we see this analogy, this symbol of a mountain uh, picturing God's government and His kingdom. <clears throat> and so it says, And many people shall come and say, Come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us His ways. and We shall walk in His paths. So here we see that the mountain is pictured as a nation and come up to the top. You know, the top of the mountain is the summit. And often today our leaders around the world will have summit meetings. They come together, you see, at the summit. So even in modern times, we see some of those analogies. Now, there are other uh, symbols that you're very familiar with. A woman often pictures a church in Scripture. And then waters uh, can picture a people, large masses of people. Uh, Wild beast, as it refers to in some places, could be an analogy for for madmen who might be acting like wild animals and doing things of that type. So as we look into Scripture, we see that there's type and anti-type. There's the physical and spiritual. And as we enjoy these spring holy days that we're involved with right now, these holy days are filled with important symbols that have very meaningful uh, things, important symbols that are very meaningful for us, things that, that really help us to grasp and understand what uh, God would have us to understand about His wonderful plan. And it's here for us. We go over these things and we rehearse them. And, and I hope that you never get tired of doing that because uh, each time we do it, we can learn something that maybe we've overlooked. Maybe life's experiences along the way during the last year will help us as we look into Scripture once again to see something that we've not seen before, understand it a little more deeply. Now, at the Passover, uh, we washed feet. Now, that's very strange to this world, uh, but we did that because the Scripture said to do that. Now, we wash feet not because they were dirty. That wasn't it at all, but because it pictures something. It pictures a humble attitude, an attitude of service. It's interesting. Most of the mainstream churches do not do that, but the Catholic Church does that. At least the Pope does that. Here's an article from the Associated Press uh, dated April 9th. It says, uh, talking about Pope Benedict, it says uh, Pope Benedict exchanged his gold-colored robes for a long white apron to perform a Thursday evening foot-washing ceremony in St. John Lateran Basilica in Rome. Goes on and says the feet-washing ceremony symbolizes humility and commemorates Jesus' Last Supper with his twelve disciples, uh, twelve apostles, on the evening before his Good Friday crucifixion. You see, they don't quite get it. He says this. This is the interesting way they do it, as you might compare it as the way that we do it. Bending over each of the priests who were seated all in a row, Benedict poured water from a golden pitcher over a bare foot of each man. So he did one foot of each person. <laughs> with the drops being caught underneath in a golden basin. <laughs> then the Pope dried the feet with a simple white cloth. My purpose is not to make fun, but just to so that they know obviously that there's something that should be done and while they don't do it as we do and uh, Jesus said wash one another's feet but that's not how they do it the Pope washes theirs as a symbol so it's interesting uh, now I didn't say this in the article but I know when Pope John Paul was alive he not only washed their feet he then kissed them had to go God one better Okay, so, so <laughs> you see don't just take the instruction you have to go at one better but it's interesting to see how people uh, do those things now, as we read the Scriptures, we see, the and we've gone through these symbols in the last few days, the bread uh, is a symbol of Christ's body. The wine that we partook of was a symbol of His blood. And a vivid uh, these are vivid physical symbols of the spiritual sacrifice that Christ, Christ made for us. Things that we're familiar with, and yet when we put them in that context, when we put it in that setting, when we read the instruction that went with it, then suddenly you see it becomes something that's very vivid, something very memorable for us. And these days of unleavened bread that we're involved in right now, <clears throat> they, we know that uh, putting leavening out of our homes, putting e- eating bread that is unleavened, uh, we see the analogy that leaven pictures sin. Now, leaven is not sin, but it's a symbol. Leaven obviously puffs up. Uh, and so during this time, we eat the flat tasteless bread. You know, we, we learn things from that That because it's something physical that we're doing. 11, picture sin. It's a type. It's an analogy from which we can learn. And God has us to do those things. Now, long ago, in physical Egypt, the most powerful, prosperous nation on earth at that time, God used physical symbols and types to teach lessons and they're recorded for us. I'm sure that The people back then learned lessons. It's recorded, and now thousands of years later, we can learn lessons for those things. Now, scientists and scholars look for ways to disprove these accounts that we read about. If any of you watch uh, the History Channel, and I know you do, (laughs) and they always get it fouled up. You know, they'll, they'll, they'll read what the Scripture says, and then they'll try to find a human, logical, scientific explanation. And along the way, they usually really, you know, get it messed up pretty badly. They look for ways to, to disprove all these accounts but in actuality it has not worked. So as we keep these days of unleavened bread, brethren, let's look at the events that took place at the time of the exodus. Uh, now, you're familiar with them, but let's look at them and their symbolism uh, and and see what we can learn. We shouldn't take these things for granted. We really shouldn't, brethren. It would be dangerous to do so. Why? Because we might overlook things of real importance that God would have us to learn. If you like a title for the sermon today, I've entitled it Another Look at Exodus and the Days of Unleavened Bread. Now, God used the plagues back at that time to get Pharaoh to relent and to let God's people go, the Israelites go. Now, the, the, you have to realize, and I'm sure you do, that Pharaoh was the most powerful man on earth at that time. And he wasn't just a physical king in the eyes of those people. He was descended from the gods. He was looked upon and worshipped as a literal god. He could really do no wrong. His word was law. And as we see these events unfold, we'll see how uh, the Pharaoh and his people realized that they weren't gods at all. And they were shown to be very powerless before the great god. Now, also put this in the Pharaoh's perspective. Someone comes in and says, hey, let my people go. And he says, wait a minute. <laughs> this is my workforce. Uh, you see, the slaves were, were wealth. The slaves were power. The, uh, the slaves uh, were a source of pride to the Egyptians. They had millions of people that doing, that doing their work and building their cities and doing all of these things. So it's not something that they would let go of easily because clearly... It was of great value to them. I'm always thankful for the water deacon. It's (laughs) unleavened. As we think about this, brethren, the plagues proved that the God of Israel was all powerful and the gods of Egypt were not gods at all. Not gods at all. Turn back to Exodus chapter 7. Something that you probably read is in preparing for these holy days. But let's look at them fresh today. Exodus chapter 7. Here we see that the plagues begin. Exodus chapter 7. Verse 3 of Exodus 7 says, God says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt. So God had a plan. And he told Moses what he was going to do. Look at verse 5. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the eternal. When I stretch out my hand on Egypt and bring the children of Israel from among them. Bring out the children of Israel from among them. So here we see the stage is set. These plagues are going to begin. And then we read about uh, the first plague. Look down at verse 17, verse 17, Exodus chapter 7. Again, I hope you'll read all of the verses in great detail, but we'll just hit the highlights here as we illustrate these plagues. Verse 17, Thus says the Eternal, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, I will strike the waters which are in the river with the rod that is in my hand, and they shall be turned to blood. So here's the mighty Nile River, and it's going to be turned to blood. And the fish that are in the river shall die the river shall stink and the egyptians will loathe to drink the water of the river then moses uh, the lord spoke to moses say to aaron take your rod and stretch out your hand over the waters of egypt over the river streams over their rivers over their ponds and over all their pools of water that they may become blood and there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, both in buckets of wood and in pitchers of stone. So here we see that the, again, the mighty Nile, something that the, uh, the Egyptians worshiped the Nile. They saw it as a source uh, of life. Uh, the, the flood cycle brought them uh, the rich soil, uh, the, the waters brought them, uh, irrig- uh, they could irrigate, they could have their crops, and so on. And in this fertile area, it was a source for them of great blessing. Not only that, but they took a lot of fish and so on out of there for their diet and for food and so on. So they saw it as as something they could count on, something that was there for them. And they actually worshipped the river. Now we see that the waters are turned to blood. And uh, now it's a curse. It's repulsive. It's something vile. It stinks. Uh, It's just a stinking mess. And this thing that they worship is now a curse. Obviously, God is showing them something that they could not have understood without a miracle like this occurring, a great sign. Then going right on, uh, look at uh, uh, Exodus chapter 8 now, verse 2. We'll look at the the next curse that's listed, Exodus chapter 8. Let's look at verse 1. And the Lord spoke to Moses, go to Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Eternal, Let my people go, that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will smite all your territory with frogs. So the river shall bring forth frogs abundantly, which shall go up and come into your house, into your bedroom, on your bed, into your houses, the houses of your servants, on your people, in your ovens, and into your kneading bowls. And the frogs shall come up on you, on your people, and on all Your servants. And then, drop down to verse 6, So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. It's interesting. Uh, You know, you you think about it. Now, the the Egyptians were familiar with frogs. The, The river would flood, and then as it receded, it would leave pools. And these pools would, would have, you know, a normal amount of frogs. And so they had heard the frogs and seen the frogs. They actually even worshiped the frog as one of their sacred animals. It's amazing as we looked at it. But their goddess Hecht, H-E-C-T, was, was one of their gods. And it was a god of uh, regeneration, a god of the the resurrection because they would appear every year, you see, in their, in their life cycle. So they worshiped. They had, one of their gods had a frog's head. So they worship the frog. Now, wherever they go, they can't get away from the frogs. Imagine walking across your floor with sw- frogs squishing underneath, you know. Been a long, hard day and you slip between the sheets to go to bed and there's a cold, slimy frog, you know. <laughs> you know, you go to the cupboard, it's time for breakfast, you open it up and, and what's in your favorite cereal bowl? Frogs. <laughs> Everywhere. You know, these things of different kinds, I'm sure, they had an odor, they were slimy. Uh, What they worshipped is now a curse. It's amazing, brethren. Something simple, you might think. And yet, here's the greatest nation, millions of people, and they see the things that they hold dear and they hold precious being a curse. God used this in a way that they couldn't overlook it. And you'll notice that first, the first plague that we looked at, the blood, and now the frogs, both, you see, come out of the river. The Nile, which was a source, they thought, of their blessings, is now a curse. And the people endured that everywhere. Uh, It was pervasive, and they could not get away from it. Let's look at the third plague that God brought on them. Look at uh, Exodus chapter 8. We'll look at verse 17. Exodus 8, verse 17. Let's look at verse 16. So the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your rod and strike the dust of the land, so that it may become lice throughout all the land of Egypt. And they did so. For Aaron stretched out his hand with his rod and struck the dust of the earth, and it became lice on man and on beast. All the dust of the land became lice throughout all the land of Egypt. Now, is it lice... as it is described here, probably was a small gnat or possibly a tick that had a painful, irritating sting. Now, we all love being here in the South where it's nice and warm, but guess what we get with it? We do get bugs here, right? Y'all have been exposed to uh, this sort of thing that, that can be very annoying. Now, everywhere they went, they had a problem with uh, this this lice, whatever type of bug this was, um, they swarmed. Uh, they were creeping into their eyes and into their nose and into their ears. They couldn't get away from this. It's a horrible thing. Very un- very uncomfortable. Probably very painful. And yet, we see that God had them go through that so that they could learn the lesson that there was something uh, greater than their gods, something greater than they. And the lice was really a terrible Uh, thing for them look at verse 19 then the magician said to Pharaoh this is the finger of God in other words they couldn't duplicate this with with their black magic even with the demonic influence that they may have had this sort of thing that's not something that they could have duplicated this is the finger of God but Pharaoh's heart grew hard and he did not heed them just as the Lord had said so we see that's the third plague that the Egyptians underwent now Let's look at number 4. Look at uh, Exodus chapter 8, verse 20. And the Lord said to Moses, Rise early in the morning and stand before the Pharaoh as he comes out to the water. Then say to him, Thus says the Eternal, Let my people go that they may serve me. Or else, if you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants and on your people, And into your houses, the houses of the Egyptians shall be full of swarms of flies and also the ground on which they stand. But look at this, it says, And in that day I will set apart the land of Goshen, in which my people, the Israelites, dwell, that no swarms of flies shall be there, in order that you may know that I am the Eternal in the midst of the land. I will make a difference between my people and your people tomorrow. This sign shall be. So we see what's happened here now. Look at verse 24. And the Lord did so. Thick swarms of flies came into the house of Pharaoh, into his servants' houses, and into all the land of Egypt. The land was corrupted because of the swarms of flies. These, according to the experts, were probably dog flies. It's a particular type of fly, uh, that more numerous and, and more annoying than gnats. Um, they fasten themselves onto the body, and in this case the human body, uh, especially around the eyelids. And uh, even when they weren't swarming before this particular curse came on, uh, this type of fly causes a lot of blindness in that part of the world. And here now there's swarms of these things everywhere. It's a great curse. Throughout the land of Egypt except in the land of Goshen, where God's people were. They were spared. This fact was not lost on the Egyptians, I'm sure, <laughs> that they were having the terrible plague, and the the Hebrews were not. It was certainly something that would get their attention. <clears throat> and it was a great curse. And of course you know the story. Uh, Pharaoh said uh, uh, we'll let we'll let them go. But then of course he hardened his heart and he didn't. Let's go down to the next one. The fifth plague that was brought upon the Egyptians Uh, in Exodus chapter 9 Exodus chapter 9 verse 2 and verse 1 it said let my people go verse 2 for if you refuse to let them go and still hold them behold the hand of the Lord will be on your cattle in the field on the horses on the donkeys on the camels on the oxen And on the sheep, a very severe pestilence. And the Lord will make a difference between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt. So nothing shall die of all that belongs to the children of Israel. Then the Lord appointed a set time, saying, Tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land. So the next day... So the Lord did this thing on the next day, and all the livestock of Egypt died. And as you look at it, it means probably all that was in the field, because later we find there was some livestock, but all that was in the field died. But the uh, livestock of Egypt died, but all the livestock of the children of Israel did not, not one died. So clearly now God made a difference and killed all the cattle. Now, th- this again was a part of their wealth. The oxen did the heavy moving the, the camels and the donkeys and so on. The, this, was, this was their transportation, their hauling and so on. So to, to be without all that, obviously, is a great blow to the land. This was a, a busy country, a lot of commerce, a lot of things going on. And now the things they used to, to do all of that, these animals have died. It was a great curse. It obviously um, was a terrible blow. Another thing was uh, their main god was the bull, Apis, the bull. They built great temples to the bull. And the bulls died. Obviously, their great God, their main God, was no match for the God of Israel. I think it's interesting today, Brad. We think that maybe that's so quaint. You know, that's different. They were ignorant people. And yet, up on Wall Street, right out in front of Merrill Lynch, they have a great bull tossing his head. <laughs> you see, it's a symbol. Just interesting how some of these symbols uh, continue to go down into our time. You'll see that happening. Well, the bull, they worshipped the bull back then. They also worshipped the cow. The cow had, was it a typical, um, a different symbol for them. But the bull was very important. And, and it died. Again, showing that the gods of Egypt were no match at all for the great God of Israel. Now let's look at the next one, number 6. Number 6. Exodus 9, verse 8. Exodus chapter 9, verse 8. So the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take for yourselves handsfuls of ashes from the furnace, and let Moses scatter it toward the heavens in the sight of Pharaoh. Now, I don't know for certain, brethren, but it may be that these furnaces were used for as brick kills, where they fired the brick, this sort of thing. It might have been a part of what they were doing. And now they're taking the ashes from uh, those furnaces, which had been such a, a hard thing for the Israelites, and scattering it in the heavens in the sight of Pharaoh. And it shall become fine dust in all the land of Egypt, and it will cause boils that break out in sores on man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. Then they took ashes from the furnace and stood before Pharaoh, and Moses scattered them toward heaven. And they caused boils that break out in sores on man and beast. And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils, for the boils were on the magicians and on all the Egyptians. So here we see this terrible thing, painful boils. Now, if you've had a boil, you know how that can be. But to be covered with them would be a terrible thing. Now, it was particularly uh, bad for the Egyptians because they worship the body beautiful. You look at their paintings, you look at uh, the things that have survived, and you can see that they worship the beautiful body. And and one covered with boils wasn't very beautiful, and it was certainly a painful thing. The priests, it says in particular, that they weren't spared. The priests were very a cognizant they, they uh, shaved their their bodies and their head they, they washed several times a day ceremonially they wore uh, clean linen uh, garments this sort of thing they, they, were, they were ceremonially pure they were called the pure ones and here now they're covered with boils it had to be a great blow now uh, they had inflicted pain on the Israelites down through the generations that they were there the Egyptians had and now God inflicts pain on them The the tables have turned, and obviously God is is showing them that in these curses. Very interesting to consider. Now let's go on in the the seventh plague that they brought, that God brought on the Egyptians. Exodus 9. Exodus 9, verse 17. Exodus 9, verse 17. As yet you exalt yourself against my people in that you will not let them go. So Moses was explaining to Pharaoh what was happening. Behold, tomorrow, about this time, I will cause very heavy hail to rain down, such as has not been in Egypt since its founding until now. Therefore, send now and gather your livestock and all that you have in the field. For the hail shall come down on every man and every animal which is found in the field, and it is not brought home, and they shall die. So... Uh, It goes on and says, He who feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh made his servants and his livestock flee to the houses. They brought them in, their homes and barns and wherever they could get them out of the open. Verse 21, But he who did not regard the word of the Lord left his servants and his livestock in the field. And, of course, we know um, what happened. Uh, Verse 25, it says, let's, let's go 24, There was hail and fire mingled with the hail. So very heavy that there was none like it in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. And the hail struck throughout the whole land of Egypt, all that was in the field, both man and beast. And the hail struck every herb of the field and broke every tree of the field. So where they had their orchards and where they had their crops and so on, the hail is breaking it all down. Only in the land of Goshen, where the children of Israel were, there was no hail. And this was a rare phenomenon. They didn't have this happening, that sort of thing. Uh, There was a lot of hail in this part of the country yesterday. There were storms and so on. And as I watched the news last evening, they showed some that was, you know, larger than a golf ball, almost the size of a tennis ball in parts of North Carolina and other areas. Not too unusual here. That part of the world, very rare. And in this case, uh, out of the sky fell chunks of ice and fire, something that's hard for us to imagine. But obviously... phenomenon that God brought about. It It killed men and animals and crops. It damaged their buildings and their infrastructure. They were so proud of what they had in that great nation. And here we see their infrastructure being destroyed. It had been such a source of pride and it's being reduced to rubble because they would not listen to the great God and let the people go. So they brought hail. God brought hail and fire. On the Egyptians, and then going on, number the eighth plague let 's look at Exodus ten Exodus ten let 's look at verse four <clears throat> Exodus ten, verse four, or else, if you refuse to let my people go, behold tomorrow, I will bring locusts into your territory, and they shall cover the face of the earth, so that no one will be able to see the earth. And they shall eat the residue of what is left, which remains to you from the hail. They shall eat every tree which grows up for you out of the field. They shall fill your houses, the houses of all your servants, and the houses of all the Egyptians, which neither your fathers nor your fathers' fathers have seen since the day that they were on the earth to this day. And he turned and went out from Pharaoh. So here we see that the, the locusts, are coming. Look down at verse 13. So Moses stretched out his rod over the land of Egypt, and the Lord brought an east wind on the land all that day and all that night. And when it was, and when it was morning, the east wind brought the locusts. And the locusts went up over the land, all the land of Egypt, and rested on all the territory of Egypt. They were very severe. Previously there had been no such locusts as they, nor shall there ever be such after them. For they covered the face of the whole earth, so that the land was darkened. And they ate every herb of the land and all the fruit of the trees which the hail had left. So there remained nothing green on the trees or on the plants of the field throughout all the land of Egypt. So these locusts devoured everything in sight. In, in reading about... the the types of locusts that they have in that part of the world. And and this may have been something special because it says there was none like them before. But these locusts can eat their own weight uh, in in food every day. And there's millions of them. It described how many million there can be. And if I told you, you wouldn't believe it. It was a huge amount. Anyway, it darkened the sky. It ate everything. Uh, Now, clearly, the Egyptians, when they were in power, had taken the produce of others. They had lived off of what others had done. Now theirs was taken away. These locusts would pile up on the ground at night and had a terrible stench of crush by being walked on. The Egyptians had crushed others. And now they are being crushed. It was a huge turnaround for them. Something that they could not have even imagined. And yet God was bringing this on them so they could learn the lessons. And brethren, it's recorded for us so that we also can see how great the God we serve is and and the lessons that they learn, we don't have to learn in the same way. So the locust, obviously, was a terrible curse. It ate everything that was left. And this prosperous country now faces ruin and famine. Now let's look at uh, another, the the ninth plague that, that God brought on them. Exodus chapter 10, verse 21. Exodus chapter 10, verse 21. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward the heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, darkness which may even be felt. Now that's dark. That's dark. I don't know if you've ever been in a cave, like maybe on an excursion or tour, and they get you down in the earth and they'll turn the lights out for a moment. How dark that is. I've had that and I'm sure many of you have. And it's just, it's, it's not the typical darkness. I mean, it's completely, it's darkness that you can feel. And that's what it was going to be here. Verse 22, So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was thick darkness in all the land of Egypt for three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the children of Israel had light in their dwellings. Again, this was not lost on the Egyptians that God had made a difference. Now think about this, brethren. The Egyptians worshiped Ra, the sun god. They they worshiped the sun god, and now the sun god has been completely vanquished for three days. Their great god, the sun, you see, was not seen, and there was this thick darkness. Clearly, uh, something that's hard for us to even imagine, and certainly they were terrified, I'm certain, and realized that something uh, completely... Beyond what they could imagine had occurred when they, it was dark for three days, and then we come to the tenth plague, the worst plague, all these other things were leading up to the the worst plague of all. Look at exodus eleven Exodus chapter eleven verse four, Exodus chapter eleven, verse four, <clears throat> then Moses said, "Thus says the Lord about midnight." I will go out into the midst of Egypt, and all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the female servant who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the animals. What an incredible thing. Look at verse 6. Then there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as was not like it before, nor shall be like it again. But against none of the children of Israel shall a dog move its tongue against man or beast, that you may know that the Lord does make a difference between the Egyptians and Israel. So here we see that the the death of the firstborn. What an incredible thing. You remember that Egypt had tried to exterminate the newborn sons of the Israelites. Remember Moses was spared because his parents had courage. And because God worked it out. And yet they had, the Egyptians had tried to stamp out and to exterminate the newborn sons. And now you see, it's coming back on them. Here, they were going to experience a great loss, an overwhelming loss. Uh, There was not a house where there was not one dead. Every home was touched, even the animals. Obviously, the greatest thing that you can imagine is losing that in a nation. It was a crushing blow. Uh, the cumulative effect of ignoring God's warnings and His instructions amounted to a great disaster for Egypt. And of course, Egypt was a symbol of this world. We talk about today in our time when we, the conversion process coming out of Egypt, coming out of this world, brethren. Just as Egypt was in effect destroyed. So will this modern world be destroyed in the end time when God is ready. If He could do it back then with the power and, uh, that He showed and that He demonstrated, when He is ready this time, it, He can certainly do that. And now, as then, God will make a difference for Israel, for spiritual Israel. Now, who is that, brethren? Turn over to Galatians chapter 6. God made a difference back then between the Egyptians and Israel. Some of us are maybe descendants of Israel. All of us, certainly in the church of God today, are spiritual Israel. And we see that in Galatians chapter 6, where the church is referred to in a certain way. Galatians chapter 6, verse 16. Galatians 6, verse 16. And as many as walk according to this rule, talking about the way of God, the way of life that we live, peace and mercy be upon them just as God had peace and mercy on those Israelites long ago while their neighbors were under a terrible curse, and upon the Israel of God. Israel of God certainly being spiritual Israel, the church. So we see, brethren, that God will deal with this evil world and its adversary system of competition and greed and pride when he is ready. He did that long ago. And it's recorded for us so that we can learn the lessons. And we review these things this time of year. We rehearse these scriptures and we go over them. But every time we do, I hope that we can be reminded and that we can learn lessons that we really do need to learn. Now, God instituted these days so that we would not forget these important events and so that we could eventually, continually, throughout our lives, learn from them. Turn back to Exodus 13. Exodus 13. Back then, he described and said why he would do these things. Exodus 13, verse 3. Exodus 13, verse 3. And Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you went out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, for by the strength of the hand of the Eternal brought you out of this place No leavened bread shall be eaten. So we see that He gave specific instructions. Look down at verse 8. Exodus 13, verse 8. And you shall tell your son in that day, saying, This is done because of what the Lord did for me when I came up from Egypt. And certainly today, brethren, we teach our children why we do the things we do. Why do we keep the Sabbath? Why do we have certain things that we eat and not eat? Why do we keep the holy days? Why are we keeping these days right now? We explain this to our children. You shall tell your son in that day, saying, This is done because of what the Lord did for me when I came up from Egypt. It shall be as a sign to you on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the Lord's law may be in your mouth, for with a strong hand the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. Therefore, you shall keep this ordinance in its season from year to year. That was a command for them, and certainly, brethren, as God's people, we carry these things out today. Now, he mentions here unleavened bread. We're to eat unleavened bread. Now, what does it picture? What would God have us to learn from eating this flat, tasteless bread? I mean, you might as well eat the box, right? I mean, as far as as far as far the taste and so on. But, but God doesn't do things without a reason. Uh, and yet, because of that, we know He wants us to learn something. And we find in Scripture various terms... Used to describe uh, the bread uh, from which we can glean some insights about what God would have us to learn. Turn over to Deuteronomy 16. Deuteronomy 16. Here we find an expression describing this bread. Deuteronomy 16. <clears throat> Here it's talking about the Passover and so on. In verse uh, 3 of Deuteronomy 16, it says, You shall eat no leavened bread with it. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread with it. That is the bread of affliction. For you came out of the land of Egypt in haste, that you may remember the day in which you came out of the land of Egypt all the days of your life. So here it's called the bread of affliction. Now, if you look up the word that's translated affliction here, it's a Hebrew word that means misery and trouble. Uh, Something that's out of the ordinary. Misery. Something that's really bad. And so, they came out of Egypt, which was a terrible time for them. And and they were to remember that. Now, God's people have known trouble down through time. God's people have experienced that. Turn over to Exodus chapter 1. Again, rehearsing the things that we look at, particularly this time of year. Exodus chapter 1. It's a part of our history, brethren, that we need to be familiar with. And certainly, we go over it year by year. Exodus chapter 1, verse 13. Again, making the point that God's people through time have known trouble. Exodus 1, verse 13. So the Egyptians made the children of Israel serve with rigor. Uh, My margin says, with harshness. And they made their lives bitter with hard bondage, in mortar, in brick, and in all manner of service in the field. All their service in which they made them serve was with rigor. In other words, it was bitter. It was hard service. This wasn't where they were getting satisfaction from their work and enjoying that. They were in, in bondage. They were in servitude. They weren't being paid for it, as you might uh, think. They were they with rigor, meaning with harshness. And this went on for a very long time. Great harshness. Now, as we think about this, and we read about this, brethren, did God overlook their pitiful condition? These were His people, and it was going on. Did He overlook their, their wretched circumstances? No, not at all. Look at Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3, Exodus chapter 3 and verse 7, and the Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. So as we read that, brethren, think about it. God says, I've seen, I've heard, and I know what they're going through. And I think from time to time, brethren, as we go through trials and tests, you may say, does God have a clue about what I'm going through? You know, and yet if He knew for those people back then, if He knew, if He if He saw their circumstances, if He heard their cries and their prayers, if He knew what they were going through, then He certainly does for us today. But He knew their sorrows and what they were going through. So, brethren, I hope that we can take Uh, uh, encouragement from that and realize that God knows our circumstance. I uh, saw a a sign on a church marquee. Some churches, you know, have little clever sayings. on, And and this one was true. It says, We never take God by surprise. And brethren, we never do. God knows our circumstances. Now, brethren, many of us were prompted to come out of this world because of troubles that we'd experienced. You know, when life is sweet, you don't want to make a change. Right? When things are going well, why make a change? And yet, often, as we experience troubles, if we have trials and difficulties, uh, we, we want to make a change. I think many of us knew that there had to be a better way. There had to be a better way. Uh, so we were willing to listen to God's call. While others may not have because things are sweet in their life. Things are going well. Why should they change? And yet, if, if, if we're willing to listen, and just as those Hebrews of old were willing to listen... Because of the difficulty of that of they had suffered. But once we change, and once we begin to go God's way, are our troubles over? Are our troubles over at that time? Not at all. Not at all. Look at Psalm 34. Psalm 34, brethren. Always beautiful words in the Psalms. We sing many of these in our hymnal. Psalm 34, <clears throat> verse 19. Psalm 34, verse 19. This is a psalm of David. David certainly had his ups and downs, and he went through terrible trials. And he wrote in Psalm 34, 19, Many are the afflictions of the righteous. You know, to put it in biblical language, we say we have troubles, not a few. <laughs> you probably have felt that way. Many the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of them all. So, brethren, certainly um, we want to keep that in mind, that God can and will deliver us. Look down at verse 22. Verse 22. The Lord redeems the soul of His servants, and none of those who trust in Him shall be condemned. Redeems. That's a beautiful word. And certainly uh, it means that, you know, God claims you for His own. Uh, Much of what we have done in the symbolism of this week, brethren, in the Passover and so on, is about redemption, being redeemed. And here we see that the Lord redeems the soul of His servants. He claims you for His own. Now, Paul certainly uh, experienced a lot of difficulty and wrote about that. I asked the question, are our troubles over? Not at all. Look at Acts chapter 14. Acts chapter 14. Acts 14, verse 21. Acts 14, verse 21. And when they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith, saying... Now you have it made. No, that's not, <laughs> that's not what he said. <clears throat> he said, uh, can, exhorting them to continue in the faith, saying, We must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. I'd said there could be difficulty. There will be tribulations. Paul was out working hard to build the church, and he told the people back at that time, Expect difficulty. Expect difficulty now, happily, we have promises that God will not give us more than we can stand, but there would be difficulties along the way now. Paul instructed Timothy about this. turn over to second Timothy, second Timothy. You can read about paul 's life, well he's like to say when Paul took his shirt off. you could see the scars. he went through an incredible amount of difficulty, and yet God used him in such a powerful way, and he wrote so much of the New Testament Bible that we have. 2 Timothy, chapter 3. 2 Timothy, chapter 3. Let's start in verse 10. Let's start in verse 10, 2 Timothy 3. Paul wrote to him, he says, But you have carefully followed my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, perseverance. Describing those things, he would set that example. Verse 11, persecutions. Afflictions which happened to me at Antioch. So Paul told it like it was. At Iconium, at Lystra, what persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord delivered me. Paul went through a lot, but he could say that God had delivered them out of those and let him live to serve and to work another day. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer Persecution. But evil men and impostors will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. So the point is, brethren, don't be caught off guard because we know that these things can happen. It may not happen every day. may not have happened to you yet. And yet along the way, if we're living the Christian life, if we're putting these things into practice, it's very likely that we'll have some difficulty, some persecution, uh, some problems that are directly related to our putting... These truths, these things that we believe and hold so dear into practice. It can cause some difficulty. So clearly we should not be caught off guard. Paul also said don't, don't be discouraged. Don't be discouraged. Look over at Second Corinthians. Paul writing to the church at Corinth. Second Corinthians chapter four. Second Corinthians chapter four. We'll start in verse 7. Second Corinthians 4, verse 7. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. In other words, we're physical. We are that earthen vessel you see, made out of clay, as it were. Verse 8. We are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted. But not forsaken, Paul said struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our body. For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. In our example you see. So then death is working in us, but life in you. And since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believed and therefore I spoke, we also believe and therefore speak, knowing that he who raised up the Lord Jesus will also raise us up with Jesus and will be present with us and will present us with you. For all things are for your sakes that grace, having spread through the many, may cause thanksgiving to abound to the glory of God. Therefore, we do not lose heart. And brethren, none of us should lose heart. Now, that's easy to say and hard to do. I visited a man in the hospital yesterday that's suffering greatly. It's hard not to lose heart under those circumstances. And yet, under the circumstances here, it says, do not lose heart. Even though our outward man is perishing, and, you know, as we grow older and things don't work as well as they used to, and we heard in places that we didn't used to know even existed, you know, And those as these things happen, as our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man, the part that's permanent, the character, the the things that God would have us be building, the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, and when you read what Paul went through, it's hard to believe that he could call it light affliction because he went through so much. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, Paul was looking on beyond his circumstance toward the goal of eternal life in God's kingdom, toward his role in doing that. For the things which are seen are temporary, and all they seem so real. You know, to those Egyptians long ago, their country was indestructible. When you looked around at all their great works and monuments, their great wealth, their animals, their livestock, their crops, their orchards, everything, you know, you see. But the things which are seen are temporary. But the things which are not seen are eternal. So, brethren, we have to think and see those things that are not seen because God has opened our eyes to see things that most people don't really understand. The point, brethren, is to focus on the goal as you go through these days as you go through your daily life beyond here focus on the goal and then the problems and the difficulties uh, don't seem quite so bad turn back to first peter chapter 3 first peter chapter 3 first peter 3, 1 peter 3. 1 Peter 3, verse 13. And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? And brethren, we should all and are all followers of what is good. Verse 14. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone Who asks you a reason for the hope that is within you, with meekness and with fear? So clearly, uh, we want to know what we believe and why we believe it, so we can give a straightforward answer when the time comes, if we if we are asked to do that. Look at verse uh, 17: For it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than doing evil. See, brethren, for us setting a godly example is very important. And sometimes that may bring some grief in the short run, and yet doing that is very important, as Peter wrote right here. We certainly, as we think about this, have the very outstanding example of Moses. Let's look at Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11, the book of heroes, which we had time to read it all. But Moses, of course, who played such an important role in this time that we're focusing on today, we have what is written here about Moses. Hebrews eleven, verse twenty-four. Let's start in verse twenty-three. By faith Moses. Hebrews eleven, twenty-three. By faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden three months by his parents, because they saw he was a beautiful child, and they were not afraid of the king's command. And you think about it, their lives were on the line, and yet they had the courage to act on their uh, and on their courage. by for, Verse 24, By faith Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He gave up the life of privilege. He gave up the life of a prince of Egypt. Verse 25, Choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. And certainly we understand. Look about you. There are certain pleasures in this world. But they do exact a terrible price. The death penalty. And a lot of pain and suffering along the way. Verse 26. Esteeming the reproach of Christ, greater riches than the treasures in Egypt. For he looked to the reward. What kept Moses going through all those difficulties? He looked to the reward. And... Certainly, he was able to overcome. God used him in an incredible way, uh, and he lived to be 120. By faith, he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, lest he who destroyed the firstborn should touch them. By faith, again, talking about Moses here, they passed through the Red Sea as by dry land, whereas the Egyptians, attempting to do so, were drowned, So, brethren, we see this incredible example of Moses. He looked for the reward. And so should we. And so should we. Now, brethren, we, again, should not ever be discouraged. Now, our instruction, uh, of which we should be reminded, with each bite of unleavened bread, is to look to Jesus Christ, to look to God, our Heavenly Father, uh, for deliverance. That's where... If we have difficulties now and certainly in days to come, we need to look to God for deliverance. Turn back to uh, Psalm 25. Let's read David's heartfelt prayer. Psalm 25. Psalm 25. We'll start in verse 16. Psalm 25, David said, Turn yourself to me and have mercy on me. He's crying out to God, for I am desolate and afflicted. David said, The troubles of my heart have enlarged. They just kept getting bigger. Instead of getting better, they were getting worse. Bring me out of my distresses, David cried out to God. Look on my affliction and my pain and forgive all my sins. And brethren, as we came before God at the Passover, we had examined ourselves and went through that ceremony and received forgiveness of our sins. It's important that we grasp that and see how it all works together. Look at verse 20. Psalm 25, verse 20. Keep my soul and deliver me. Let me not be ashamed, for I put my trust in you. Brethren, what's the key here to looking to God for deliverance? It's right here in this verse. He says, I put my trust in you. It's very important that we are able to do that. Put your trust in God. He also says that, um, uh, let integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait on you. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all their troubles. Redemption is a main theme in the Passover and the Days of Unleavened Bread. Redemption it's certainly something that all of us need. So we read about the bread of affliction and we look at the scriptures that pertain to that. And I hope, brethren, we can learn the lessons and, and bring it home to ourselves personally as we go through these days. Now, there are other terms referring to the bread. Let's, uh, let's turn over to Psalm 80. Psalm 80. Here we get an insight into the personality and the character of Jesus Christ. Psalm 80, verse 5. <clears throat> Let's look at verse 4, get the context. Psalm 80, verse 4. O Lord of hosts, Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry against the prayer of your people? You have fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in great measure. What an interesting expression. The bread of tears. Not something you might normally think about. The bread of tears. Turn over a few pages to Psalm 127. Psalm 127. <clears throat> psalm 127. This is a psalm of ascent. The, the Israelites use this around the, uh, the Feast of Tabernacles. Psalm of ascent. Psalm 127, verse 2. It is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows, for so he gives his beloved sleep. Again, a term, bread of tears, the bread of sorrow. It's interesting, brethren, to think about that. You know, Jesus Christ, as a human being, experienced this. He was a man of sorrows. We read this at the Passover the other night, but let's look at it again. Turn to Isaiah 53. This is a prophecy. A prophecy written long before Jesus Christ lived in the flesh. And yet, it described what He went through. Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, verse 3. Again, we read this recently, but let's look at it this afternoon. A prophecy of Jesus Christ. He is despised and rejected by men. They hated Him for preaching the truth. They wanted to kill Him for explaining God's plan. For telling them that they needed to change and to repent. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. So Jesus Christ experienced this bread of tears and sorrow, more than we probably realize. But we get a clue over in Luke 19. Turn back a few pages. Luke 19. Why was Jesus weeping? Because he had compassion. He knew what was going to happen. He knew of the pain and the suffering and the difficulty. Luke 19, verse 41. Luke 19, verse 41. Now, as he drew near, he saw the city, the city Jerusalem, and wept over it. Now, why would he do that? Verse 42, saying, If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. Verse 43, For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another, because you did not know the time of your visitation. Jesus wept. Because he could see what was going to happen, he knew at the about what was going to come upon Jerusalem, and at that point in time he he was moved to tears and I know brethren, from time to time, as you see what's going on with maybe in your life, uh, you are moved to tears, and hopefully we can be easily entreated and 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 be compassionate and understanding all of these various things, but brethren, lest we not see the whole picture, lest we focus only on the physical Let's take a look at the bread that our Savior described. Uh, We partook of that bread just a few nights ago. Look at John chapter 6. This is really where our focus needs to be. This is certainly something that we can rejoice in. Jesus explained it to them. John 6, verse 35. We talked about the bread of affliction, the bread of sorrow, the bread of tears, but Jesus here is talking about Something that we can certainly focus on. John six thirty five, And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger. And he who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. We reviewed those things. You know, Jesus Christ said in Matthew 5, verse 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. And brethren, that should be our real hunger is to hunger uh, for righteousness. And Jesus said this bread of life uh, would would fill that hunger. It would fill that empty spot. Things won't fill it. Stuff won't do it. You can't do it by filling your house with treasures. You can't fill it with hobbies. You can't fill it with, with all the things, that the, the, the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh. That will never fill that hunger. What fills it, of course, is the bread of life, which comes from Jesus Christ. Look at verse 48. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead. They were fed physically, but they came to the end of their life. This is the bread which comes down from heaven that one may eat of it and not die. He was explaining the role that he played. Verse 51, Christ said, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh. Which I give for the life, I shall give for the life of the world. So, the bread which imparts not affliction, not sorrow, not tears, but everlasting life in the age to come. That's the bread of life, brethren. Now, when that happens, we'll be with the Heavenly Father, with Christ, and the other saints who've been born into the family of God. It's something that we look forward to. And I hope as we go through these days, we can keep that in mind. Mr. Powell referred to this today, but let's actually turn and look at it. It's such an important scripture for us. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians 5, familiar words, read often during this time. But let's read it again this afternoon. Paul wrote about the bread that we should eat as God's people. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 7. <clears throat> Let's look at verse 6. Your glory is not good. Obviously, humility is required to please God. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump, can be pervasive? Therefore, he said, purge out the old leaven. And all of you have done that. You've put it out of your house. you put it out of your workplace. It's not in your lunchbox. You know it's you you've you put leaven out for this period of time, purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump since you truly are unleavened and here he's talking about not the physical leavening but spiritually being unleavened for indeed, Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, and we're doing that now today, not with the old leaven. Nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness. brethren. if you look around you, you see that all around you in this world. It's not all bad, of course. This world is a mixture of good and evil. But there is a huge amount of malice and wickedness at every turn. But for us, you see, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. That's what it's all about. Now, where does sincerity and truth come from? It doesn't come from within us. We heard about that in the sermonette doesn't come from us at all. Sincerity and truth, these are attributes or fruits of the Holy Spirit. Brethren, we have to have God's Spirit working in us if we are to be able to do the things that we need to do. We have to have this unleavened attitude if we are to have sincerity and truth. So, brethren, as we commemorate the Exodus, as we consider our own personal Exodus out of this sinful world, We will eat the bread of affliction for seven days. Let's learn the lessons and remember the words of Paul in Romans chapter 8. Turn over to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verse 18. Very stirring words here. Romans chapter 8, verse 18. Paul wrote, For I consider that the sufferings of this present age are not worthy to be compared with the glory which will be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty, of the children of God. We read the story of the Israelites being taken out of bondage and given liberty. We here read about spiritual bondage and, and spiritual liberty, the liberty of the children of God. Look at verse 31, brethren. <clears throat> what shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And I hope that these days will remind us of that, brethren, that we can always know that if God is for us, who can be against us. Look at verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? We haven't faced those things, brethren, but we may. In time to come, we may face those things. As it is written, verse 36, For your sake we are killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am persuaded. Paul was persuaded, brethren, and I hope that all of us are persuaded. I mean, deeply believing these things. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, brethren, for all of us, the bread of affliction has become the bread of life.